Hey, it's Jared. So if your Instagram feed looks anything like mine, you probably saw a variety of posts on Black Friday. Some with good deals that people were buying, but a lot with boycott notices, specifically for Amazon, concerning Jeff Bezos' pay of workers and all of that. And while this episode is not going to touch on labor theory or anything like that, I think it was important because the word boycott has been used historically and is still used today in a lot of different ways. I remember in the height of the Black Lives Matter movement this summer, there was a lot of terms about boycott this company because they were dealing with some sort of racist practice or person or support this company because it's black owned and that can help fix racial justice. And when you think about it, everything from bus boycotts to boycotts led by Cesar Chavez to South African boycotts, economic pressure has been used by the masses time and time again to achieve political goals. And that's because when you work in a globalized economy, the economic practices of one country will inevitably affect the economic practices of another country. And in the past 10, 20 years, I think there's been no better example than BDS. And this is not BTS, the K-pop band, but BDS, which stands for Boycott, Divest, and Sanction. And this is a list of economic policies on its own that are used to put political pressure one way or another. But it's also been used specifically to talk about the state of Israel. And This conversation is not going to delve into the politics of Israeli-Palestinian conflicts, but rather the American perspective as to how to influence the conflict one way or another. And people who have opposed the state of Israel in one way or another have used boycotting and divesting as a key method to influence American policy in favor of Palestinian groups. And again, we're not going to make a judgment on that one way or another, but I really wanted to understand why is this the chosen method And how has it played out over the past few years, specifically on college campuses? So for today's episode, I sit down with Thomas Schramm, who you'll recognize from our episode on the props in California, to talk about BDS, its history, and what it means to different communities across the U.S. So if you're interested in political activism in general, or really want something about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, have a listen. Hi, Thomas. Hey, Jared. What's up? Not too much. Uh, enjoying the Thanksgiving break that has now passed and uh, trying to finish out the semester strong. How about yourself? Good, good. Excited for winter break, college admissions, all of that. So all coming up. Yeah, a very nervous time indeed. Thomas, I really appreciate you coming on today. I'm really excited for our conversation. But as always, who are you and how are you involved with BDS? So I'm Thomas. I'm a high school senior at Harvard-Westlake in Los Angeles. I've been very involved with the Jewish community in Los Angeles. I've spent my time in high school working with a lot of Jewish organizations like the American Jewish Committee. And I've just spent my time really focused on Jewish issues, on Israel, on a lot of just Jewish foreign policy in general. And so in the realm of BDS, I worked with this program called Leaders for Tomorrow. It was a Jewish program focused on lobbying DC. And the main focus was to pass legislation around BDS. So for those who don't know, BDS is the Boycott, Divest, and Sanction Movement against the State of Israel. 
And so it's become sort of a huge point of contention within the Jewish community. And the whole sort of focus of our organization, at least the year that I was in it, is to go to DC, talk to our local congressional members, talk to our representatives, and actually see what change we can make and what improvements we can make within the Jewish community in regards to the state of Israel, the relations to the state of Israel, and how we address BDS and freedom of speech within the United States. That's sort of my role, especially within the Jewish community, especially within the role of like addressing the state of Israel. And that's sort of how I became involved with a lot of these organizations. Perfect. Thank you. And I think that was a good kind of sampler for what's going to come. But before getting into the nitty gritty of BDS, because that sounds really confusing and all these free speech issues, we're going to get there, I promise, for all of those who are waiting. But before that, if we can zoom out a little bit, what is BDS in the abstract? So not just to Israel, but as a general concept. And how has it been used in the past? And then how is it being used in Israel? So BDS, like I mentioned, stands for Boycott, Divest, and Sanction. So obviously boycotting has been a huge method of nonviolent protest in the past. I know we've seen it, at least in the United States, with the bus boycott during the civil rights movement. We've seen it in South Africa during apartheid. And so it's basically a way for individuals to voice their concern over a specific political issue or the control of a political body through a nonviolent means. And so in terms of its relation to the state of Israel, in the early 2000s, a man by the name of Omar Barghouti, after the intifadas, which were violent uprisings in the West Bank and Israel, he created this movement called Boycott, Divestment, and Sanction. So it's basically become the mainstream method of protest for a lot of Palestinian justice groups, a lot of international groups focused on the occupation, and just a number of organizations that have focused themselves around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And its goal, in essence, at least the goal that they've reported, is to create an opportunity for change and the occupation to allow Palestinians to achieve self-determination and to end Israeli apartheid. That's the message that they've sort of put out. There is conflicting messages, at least within the Jewish community, as to if that's the true intent of the organization. Some suggest that their purpose is to destroy the state of Israel, to say, Israel is not a legitimate state, that it doesn't deserve to exist, and that Jews have no right to self-determination. But it's really sort of become a contentious issue on college campuses, become a contentious issue between communities, between the Jewish community, communities across the, across the world, actually. But anyway, that's just a general overview of what BDS is. Obviously, it's a boycott movement. It's focused on the state of Israel, and it's become a contentious issue in more, more recent years. Yeah, that's fair. And I think at least when I first saw BDS, I didn't say, well, this isn't that bad, right? This is kind of economic pressure, right? Something that I think for anyone who follows foreign policy is not uncommon, right? Whether you've been watching in China and tariffs or, you know, even just heard the word boycott being used around Black Friday, you know that this is not necessarily something that is, that's super uncommon, I guess, exactly, um, yeah. is kind of the general message. But it has become a very central talking point when it comes to Israel, specifically in America, I would say. This is usually being talked about from some foreign influence, either another country, another community, and their support in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict one way or another. Yeah. So if BDS in this general concept is pretty much accepted in general as a really good resistance method, why has it become so controversial for the state of Israel. You mentioned a little bit about the motive behind it, but kind of how has it spiraled into something that is just not accepted by a lot of Zionists anymore? So it's sort of become, it's devolved into an anti-Semitic movement in the eyes of a lot of the Jewish community. And in order to sort of understand why it's devolved into this movement to this terrible thing, 
you kind of have to understand the definition of anti-Semitism when it comes to the state of Israel. So there's the three Ds of anti-Semitism that can be applied when looking at criticism of the state of Israel and look, looking at conversations regarding the state of Israel. So the first D is demonization. So if you use language that compares Jews to Nazis, if you compare the Holocaust, the ongoing oppression of Palestinians, if you use any of that language, that's demonization, that's deemed anti-Semitic. The second D is delegitimization. So if you say that Israel has no right to exist, if you question its existence as a whole, if you say that Jews have no right to self-determination, that sort of general sense of questioning, that is anti-Semitic. Mainly because universal, one of the universal rights of all peoples is a right to self-determination. And if you question a specific group's right to self-determination, that becomes in essence, a form of bigotry. And then the third D is double standard. So that's basically applying an unfair standard to the state of Israel that you wouldn't necessarily apply to other foreign governments or foreign bodies. And one of the most sort of pressing issues in terms of the double standard is the United Nations. I believe, what was it, 67 proposals were issued against the state of Israel compared to one against North Korea, one against Iran, against a lot of these major foreign powers who are considered tyrannical dictatorships that have huge, like huge, huge numbers of human rights abuses. So those are the three main examples, the three main, for, main forms of anti-Semitism when it comes to the state of Israel. When, you're, when looking at the BDS movement, you have to look at the each D independently. So let's take the double standard, for example. I'm going to take a real life example at the University of Michigan, where this girl wanted to go study abroad at a university in Israel. And she asked one of her professors for a letter of recommendation. He agreed initially. And then once he read the email further and understood that it was actually a university in Israel, he rescinded his acceptance of writing her letter of recommendation and said, I'm ethically unable to write you a letter of recommendation to go to a university in Israel because I support BDS. However, in that same email, he also included a recommendation for a university in China. Now, this may be nothing to some people, but if you understand the human rights abuses of the state of China, where China is actively committing a genocide against the Uyghur Muslims, where they're actively oppressing free speech and sort of committing atrocities across their country, the fact that a professor would find it ethically impossible to write a letter of recommendation for a student going to study in Israel, yet recommend a program in China, suggests that there would be a double standard. And so that's a huge issue, especially when looking at the state of Israel, because a lot of the human rights abuses they commit um, and they commit a lot of human rights abuses. That's a fact. A lot of their illegal settlements in the West Bank, the treatment of Palestinians, the IDF, all of that. Those are human rights abuses. But if you compare them to countries around the world, then it, it, it raises the question, why focus on Israel? And at least in the Jewish community, we refer to Israel as the Jew among the nations. And so in the past, Jews have been held to higher standards than their counterparts. I know if you look at the Holocaust and the ways that Jews were treated, if you look at how Jews were treated in their entire history preceding the Holocaust, they've been held to higher standards. So the fact that that same level of a double standard, the same level of unfair expectations for the state of Israel exists, suggests that there's anti-Semitism within the BDS movement. Another huge factor is delegitimization. So like I mentioned, the main core principles of BDS, the main goals of BDS are to end the occupation, to achieve self-determination for Palestinians, etc. But when you do a deeper dive into the actual goals of BDS and you actually understand what their purpose is, it becomes a lot more murky. So the individual I mentioned, Omar Barghouti, who started the organization, one of the comments that he made on a panelist discussion discussing BDS was that no sellout Palestinian would accept a Jewish state. 
in essence, suggesting that Israel has no right to exist, that they are hoping for the end of the Jewish state. And so the fact that there is no self-determination, no guarantee of self-determination for the Jewish people, that becomes an issue. When you're questioning Israel's right to exist, that's become a huge talking point for a lot of the BDS proponents. That, like I mentioned before, becomes a huge issue. So the whole fact that they're trying to delegitimize the state of Israel, especially in the international community, that become, becomes a whole other level of anti-Semitism. And then the main method that I think has become a larger issue, especially on college campuses, is the demonization of the state of Israel. So often people refer to Zionists as Zio-Nazis, comparing them to obviously Nazis in World War II. They compare a lot of the refugee camps that Palestinians currently live in to Auschwitz or to other concentration camps. And a lot of this language is deeply troubling to the Jewish community, especially because they're using the past traumas of the Jewish community against them in a political way. So the demonization of the state of Israel, which is a common occurrence on a lot of college campuses, and is used against students who are not necessarily involved in the conflict at all, who are just Jewish students struggling to make it through their college experience. Those are sort of actually one of the more egregious forms of anti-Semitism when it comes to the BDS movement. So anyway, those are the three main views of anti-Semitism. That's why it's become an issue. And there's a lot sort of underlying the BDS movement in terms of its goals, in terms of its deeper sort of motives for the actions they take. And so that's sort of why it's become a huge contentious issue within the Jewish community. Yeah, I think there's a lot there, obviously. And I think it's important to kind of understand where it is. And I think one thing, at least, is that the definition of anti-Semitic is not by any means universally agreed upon. And I think that's an issue that I think a lot of people are willing to admit one way or another, right? Is that if we're going to kind of evaluate something under a criteria, we need to all be on the same page of what that criteria is. And I think, Thomas, you have a a really nice formal definition that I would say a, a good amount of people, if not majority, would tend to agree with. Still, what falls under that and what constitutes these kind of larger topics of demonization is something that's very much a question, at least in my mind. So I think that's one thing to take into consideration. The second thing that I think you did point out is that a lot of people do con- do not defend the Israeli government in terms of their current actions, right? Or at least most people I talk to are not massive fans of Benjamin Netanyahu establishing settlements illegally, right? No one is really here saying, oh, that's why BDS is a problem. It's because you know, it's targeting the wrong problem. Now, most people agree you want to protest these problems. The question is, how do you do it effectively? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the conversation I'm really interested in because if everyone agrees that something relatively is bad, right? Yeah. I.e. The, the Israeli government's treatment of Palestinians. No one agrees that's a good thing. Then mm-hmm. how can we go about it as outsiders, really? At least people who don't live in Israel is probably the better yeah. term. <laughs> And outsider sounds weird, but people who don't live in Israel, and how can we comment on that in an effective manner? So you mentioned college campuses, and I think that's a really good place to start. You're in the middle of college admissions. I'm out of college. We're both really affected by this. And one thing I find really interesting is a lot of Jewish groups on campus will say BDS is not a problem here. Right? I've heard that in like tours after tours that like BDS just does not exist here. And when I first heard that, I was like, interesting right like is that just one story being told then i'm not a huge fan of that but it obviously is a little bit deeper than that so if you kind of want to elaborate a little bit on how college campuses as a microcosm of a lot of these greater forums that we engage in Mm -hmm. how is bds affected specifically on college campuses and also kind of revisiting what i was saying how can we ensure that people are allowed to protest something that almost everyone agrees is bad well, making yeah. sure they do it and don't harm someone's identity. 
So that's it's a lot to unpack there. So in terms of why it's really taken a hold of college campuses, that was in essence the target of BDS. Like when the organization was first formed, when the movement was first formed, they wanted to focus on young impressionable individuals who would become the future leaders across the, the world. And college campuses provided the perfect outlet for that. And so a lot of organizations like the Students for Justice in Palestine, Jewish Voice for Peace, If Not Now, all of these organizations, what they do is they focus on BDS resolutions within their campus. So they basically say, this university will not deal with Israel in any sense. There's no foreign exchange, there's no business dealings, there's no cultural sharing, none of that. There's a complete boycott of everything that is Israeli. And so that has become sort of a stepping stone for future Israeli-Palestinian activism. And a lot of BDS resolutions have been passed across the country. Organizations have been focused entirely on just making sure that student councils or student governments, whatever they may be, have been passing BDS resolutions. Speakers, Palestinian speakers have gone to campuses in preparation for BDS resolutions. And so a lot of the Palestinian focus, at least within the United States, is to pass these resolutions. It's, in essence, almost symbolic. There's no real action behind it. Because in most cases, a lot of these universities are never really going to deal with the state of Israel. A lot of these universities rarely have any exchange programs, rarely have any study abroad programs in the state of Israel. And a lot of them don't really have any economic ties to the state of Israel. But it provides a symbolic gesture towards the Palestinian people and a symbolic gesture for Palestinian justice groups within the United States that allows them to continue their activism across the country. And so in terms of what we can do to actually address the conflict in a meaningful way, BDS just not, does not provide that opportunity in any sense, because what happens is there's a cultural and academic boycott of the state of Israel. So beyond just the economic factors that exist, beyond the economic boycott that exists, there's a complete cultural boycott. And what this does is it simplifies the conflict. It basically says Israel is bad, Palestine is good, and thus, that's the end of the discussion. We're not going to have any, any debate, any, any uh, critical conversations over the conflict. And that's really what's going to generate peace, critical conversations. And so the fact that universities are no longer fostering nuanced conversations over the conflict, the fact that universities are no longer siding with Jewish groups who are just struggling to defend their members, and the fact that Palestinian groups, Palestinian justice groups, are so dead focused on painting Israel as such a bad figure instead of focus, instead of being focused on sort of peace or resolution or whatever it may be, that it's become a huge larger issue. And so the fact that there's no longer any conversation, the fact that a lot of Israeli scholars who come to US universities are no longer accepted because of BDS, there's just this lack of unity that exists. And so obviously the two sides are at odds, Palestinians, Israelis, they're in a conflict, like I said. But at the same time, the only way to solve that conflict is through conversation. And the fact that BDS is no longer offering any conversation, the fact that they limit any conversation becomes a larger issue. So with that being said, conversation is the key to peace. And conversation is really the best way you can actually address the conflict as a whole. Because a lot of what happens, a lot of the conflict that exists within college campuses is just misunderstandings, misconceptions, stereotypes, whatever it may be. And that's what just fuels or adds fire to the conflict at large. And so obviously individuals have a right to say or do whatever they please. It's a First Amendment right. But at the same time, we need to focus and make sure 
that we are maintaining a nuanced perspective, especially on international foreign conflicts that we don't necessarily have the full story on because we don't live those experiences. We don't have the lived experience of those individuals, but we just need to make sure we continue our conversation, continue addressing the conflict in a way in which we are accepting and loving of one another rather than pushing people to the side and saying my side is right and thus conversation will not be held. Okay. I rambled on for way too long there. I might No, just... you 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 are good. And I think I think you make a strong point in the sense that it, obviously anyone who is kind of a continuing listener knows I believe this because I've talked about this in past episodes. But yeah, like th- this podcast and having conversations with people is in my mind a key step to solving any issue, BDS or any other uh, you know issue we've covered on the show is because if you're just going to kind of shut out a conversation, there's no way of moving forward. Whether you believe one side's purely intolerable or not, if you just refuse to engage, you hit gridlock. And I agree with you 100% there. And I think one thing I have noticed that has been productive, whether that's obviously didn't quite happen this year with COVID, but in general happened that I've witnessed is kind of Israeli cultural events that also be inclusive of any Palestinian traditions. I think that's something that also is important is that you know, American Jews who have do, do not live in Israel can also not say, you know, I understand the Palestinian experience in this way, in the sense that there needs to be a cross exchange the other way, if that makes any sense. So I think a cultural foundation is a great place to start. And I think there are, you know, some questions as to, you know, what are the motives behind a lot of cultural events, but I think a, in theory, a purely cultural event can cannot hurt, right? You exchange ideas, you make friends, and then you can at least be willing to ease into the harder conversations. And I completely agree with you on that. I think one thing that doesn't resolve, I guess, and I'd like to hear your quick thoughts on it, is from the administration's standpoint at a lot of these universities, mm-hmm. how do you go about doing this in a way that it is kind of cohesive. Because as you said, a lot of effort has been directed in, in student government forms. Basically these uh, student governments passing resolutions one way or another. And the university, as you said, a lot of times doesn't really have a financial stake. So they're like, okay, cool, like congrats. So like, what if anything, do you think the higher ups either in higher ed or at kind of a lot of these larger liberalizing institutions uh, should do when it comes to BDS? I think that becomes a really tough question, especially because obviously you want to protect the freedom of students and you want to protect students' rights to actually act, like to be activists among their campus and among their colleagues. And I know for for me, I think the priority for school administration should be the protection of their students. BDS, in a lot of cases, has led to death threats against your students, vandalism, a major sort of impact emotionally and physically has been told on the Jewish community across the country. School administrations really just need to focus on the safety of their students. And so if that is creating, like you said, cultural events in which there is a conversation being held, that's one method that they can address the conflict. But I think they just need to protect the Jewish students, protect the Jewish community that thrives on certain college campuses, but is also suffering on others. And so as long as they provide a platform for Jewish students to share their concerns over BDS, to explain the anti-Semitism, to have a greater level of understanding among the other students who may be proponents of BDS and generate that community, generate the, the greater conversation, then that's the way that they can address the conflict. I know the federal government and state governments, actually, I think 26 states have passed resolutions condemning BDS. And what they do is they basically boycott the boycotter. 
So if someone is boycotting the state of Israel as a proponent of BDS, state governments will no longer hold any government contracts or any, any interaction with those businesses or companies. And so that's become a main way in which states can actively work against the BDS movement and actively work against the boycott of the state of Israel while also maintaining the freedoms of individuals living in this country. And so I don't really know how that translate necessarily to college campuses, but I know we can take steps to allow freedoms to continue to, to exist on college campuses while also protecting Jewish students and making sure that they feel safe and at home wherever they may be. Yeah, and I think for a lot of people, just being able to have conversations while also feeling secure is probably a goal that most people would be okay with. And it's interesting, I guess, that uh, it comes full circle with a boycott on a boycott. Nothing seems more more contentious than something like that. Thomas, I really appreciate it. And I think a lot of people who now hear this BDS word opposed to kind of defaulting to an Instagram graphic might say, look, here's a one perspective on it. And obviously, as a disclosure, there's a lot of other competing perspectives on what BDS means. And yeah. I think Thomas hinted at them. And you could talk to some other people and get very different views. But I think this is kind of a good foundation for at least a good a good portion of people and what they believe. So Thomas, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Contested. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. I loved getting all of your DMs and tags about us being in your Spotify wrapped. And if you want to be one of those cool kids, just subscribe. I know we took a break for Thanksgiving and that was well needed, I think, for our team. But we're coming out with some amazing content going forward, both with this episode next week and likely the week after. I'm really excited. We have some great guests lined up. So stay tuned. And again, if you really like what we do here, share this with your friends, because the more listeners we get, the more we can do. So to everyone who's listening to this, thank you for all your support. I'd like to extend a big thank you to Thomas Schramm for coming on. He is my go-to source for anything that develops with Israel around the world, and I really appreciate him sharing that with all of you. Shout out to Adam, as always, for doing the hard work behind the scenes. And until next time, thank you for helping us understand politics together.